All right, well, we're there in Isaiah 53, and I, I announced a little bit this morning about the chapter. This is probably, I mean, not probably, this is without a doubt the most famous chapter in the book of Isaiah, and it's probably one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, the book of Isaiah was roughly written uh, about 800 years before Christ, and yet in this chapter we have such a clear description about the crucifixion of Christ. And I want you to keep your finger there in Isaiah 53. Go with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 8, just real quickly. Acts chapter number 8 in the New Testament. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter number 8. And so often when we are looking at books like Isaiah and books of prophecy, we uh, sometimes are making educated guesses in regards to prophecy, and we'll try to cross-reference and, you know, compare spiritual things with spiritual, and sometimes I'll make statements like, this could be a reference to, you know, New Jerusalem, or this may be a reference to this or that. The beautiful thing about Isaiah 53 is that we know for a fact, without a shadow of a doubt, that it is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the reason we know that is because of Acts chapter number 8. If you look at Acts 8 and look at verse number 30, we talked about this story this morning in the sermon, but we're not going to preach on that uh, again tonight. But I want you to notice in verse 3, the Bible says, And Philip ran hither to him, that's the Ethiopian eunuch there, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now notice what it says in verse 32. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. Now, it's going to actually quote for us, and as you quote it, uh, as you read it, you'll notice that it sounds extremely familiar to Isaiah 53 because he was reading, actually, the chapter that we're studying tonight, Isaiah 53. Notice what he says. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Verse 34, uh, at verse 33, the, the quote basically ends from Isaiah 53. Verse 34 says, And the eunuch answered Philip. Now remember this morning, we're talking about the fact that unbelievers cannot understand spiritual things. They don't understand the Bible. So the eunuch is reading this passage, but he doesn't really know what it pertains to. And here's the question he asked in verse 34. He says, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee. The word pray means to ask. He said, he said Let me ask you a question. To whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? So here's what he's saying. He's saying, did Isaiah, the eunuch is asking Philip, did Isaiah say that this was going to happen to him or that this was going to happen to someone else, to another man? Notice the answer, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and that's always the case when it comes with the gospel. you got to open your mouth and began at the same scripture, Isaiah 53, to preach unto him Jesus. So we know for a fact that this passage has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's see. Keep your finger there in Acts. Go back to Isaiah 53, and we're going to begin at verse number 1. Now, here's the thing, okay? There's 12 verses in this chapter, but this chapter, it's a short chapter, but it's so jam-packed with so many prophecies about the Lord Christ. We're going to do our best to get to all of them uh, and to get through everything, but we'll have to move quickly. Uh, tonight, it's going to be more of a Bible study than maybe uh, preaching. Uh, we're going to look at a lot of cross-references, so you can take a lot of notes and uh, put a lot of notes there in Isaiah 53. It's amazing the chapter that God gives us in His Word. Isaiah 53, look at verse number 1. The Bible says this, Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? We're going to come back to that verse at the end of the sermon. Look at verse 32. For He, now we know that's the Lord Christ, 
For he shall grow up. I want you to make notice of that, those two words. Grow up before him as a tender plant. The first prophecy that we're given of Christ here is that Christ at his first coming is not coming like he's coming uh, for his second coming or his second advent. Here we are told and it is prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he's going to have some growing up to do. He shall grow up, the Bible says, before him as a tender plant. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 53. You're in the book of Acts. If you can go backwards to the book of Luke, look at Luke chapter number 2. And verse number 52, Luke chapter number 2, and verse number 52, we know that at the first coming of Christ, he came as a baby, he came as a child, and he had to grow up. And there's a prophecy that Isaiah is telling us, and he was telling the, the Jews of his day, he says, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, and Jesus, now this is Jesus as a child, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. The word stature means in height. So he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So we see there, the first thing that Isaiah tells us is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come as a child because he's going to have to grow up. Now, not only does he tell us about the fact that he's going to grow up, you know, talking about a, a reference to his physical growth, but also the fact of how he grew up. Notice, he grew up before him as a tender plant. The idea there is that he came humbly. And you know that from the Christmas story. There was no throne. There was no grandeur. There was no uh, splendid palace. There was no, you know, uh, none of those things. He was born in a stable. He was born in a manger. Uh, it was a humble beginning. He grew up as a tender plant, the Bible says. And uh, notice what he says. Uh, go, keep your finger there because we're going to be going back and forth between the New Testament and, the, and, and Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 2 again. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath, And I want you to notice this, because I, I think this is one of the most interesting prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, He hath no form nor comeliness. He hath no form nor comeliness. The word comely or comeliness means attractive or attractiveness. It means being, if you are comely, it means you're a good-looking person. Now, here's what's interesting. Isaiah prophesied that Christ hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see Him... Now, he's talking to us. He says, look, when you and I see Christ, when we shall see Him... There is no beauty that we should desire him. The Bible tells us that Jesus was not a good-looking guy. And it's interesting because today, every picture you look at, you know, that people paint about Jesus and every movie you watch, you know, I think the most recent movie that came out with Jesus was The Son of God or something like that, you know. And every time you look at him, you've got some, you know, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, you know, guy up there and he's all, you know, all looking like he's some sort of a Hollywood star. But the Bible teaches that, look, Jesus did not look like that. I hate to break it to you, but Jesus did not look like Brad Pitt, okay? He didn't look like Leonardo DiCaprio, all right? The Bible actually says that there's no comeliness, there's no attractiveness, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Now, here's what's interesting about that, because the Bible teaches, and we're going to get to this at the end of the sermon, but the way that Jesus looked when he walked this earth, is the same way that he will look up in heaven. And we're, I'm going to show you that in a second. Now, there's differences to that because he's obviously in his glorified body and, you know, he's shining and all those things, and we get that from the book of Revelation. But he looks the same. And that ought to teach you about the value that God puts on physical beauty. I mean, obviously, God doesn't think it's that important to be beautiful if he, t if he allows the Son of God to have no beauty, that we should desire him. 
And, you know, we live in this society where the media and Hollywood wants us to put all this attention and all this, you know, value on the way that someone looks. But, hey, Jesus had no form nor comeliness. There is no beauty that we should desire him is what the Bible says. Look at verse 3 again. I'm sorry, verse 3. Not only is there a physical uh, description of Christ, but there is also an emotional description of Christ. Notice what it says. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I don't think that Jesus was just, you know, this jokester. I don't think he was the life of the party. I, I believe the Bible teaches, and, and I believe one of the qualifications to be a pastor is the fact that you ought to be sober. I believe Jesus was a sober guy. I don't think he was, you know, serious all the time. I mean, we saw him rejoice at different times in the gospel. But here the Bible tells us he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Emotionally, he was a somber man. He was a serious man. He took life seriously. Notice there's a social description of Christ. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Notice, again, a reference to his beauty. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The word esteem means to respect or admire. Jesus was not the type of man that would just walk into a room and demand, you know, respect and everybody would look at him and say, wow, there's a leader. Wow, there's a man. Jesus was the type of guy that if you just walked down, you'd walk right by him. You wouldn't even notice him. You wouldn't esteem him. You wouldn't give him any respect. You wouldn't think anything of him. He just looked like a regular, normal guy. And the Bible says, we, not only that, but he was despised and rejected. Socially, he was an outcast. He was, you know, he, he, I don't think he, he wasn't winning the awards in high school, you know. He wasn't voted class president. He wasn't voted president of anything, you know. I mean, they put him to death because he wouldn't become a king. And here we are told of, of a description of Christ. And I want to give you an outline tonight. I forgot to give you point number one for those of you who like to make notes. I'm going to give you an outline for this chapter, so maybe it'll help you out a little bit. Point number one is the description of Christ. We find that in verses one through three, the descriptions of Christ. We find a physical description. We find an emotional description. We find the social description of Christ. Number two, not only do we find the description of Christ in verses one through three, but we also find the deliverance of Christ in verses four through eight. Notice what the Bible says, uh, starting in verse number four. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Notice verse five. But he was wounded. Now I want you to notice this because this is the gospel. Remember, Philip preached the gospel to the eunuch out of this passage right here. And here's what he says. He says, but he was wounded for, you got to underline these words in your Bible. He was wounded for our transgressions. The word transgression means sin. The Bible defines sin as the transgression of the law. The Bible says that he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. Iniquity, again, a reference to sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. That's quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, notice, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. 
Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off of the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. The reference there in verse 8 of to prison and judgment is the fact that he was arrested and then he was judged, you know, and we know that he was accused falsely and they lied about him, but these are all references to that. But I want you to notice, the gospel is this. The gospel is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ literally bore our sins, took our sins, and paid for our sins. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 53. Go to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's a good cross-reference for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's why I do not understand and I will never understand the idea and the concept of a work salvation. These people that say, well sure, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but you've got to also do your part. You've got to live a good life. You've got to go to church or you've got to repent of your sin or you've got to get baptized or they'll try to sneak in works at the end and they'll say, well no, it's not of works. You don't have to do anything, but once you're saved, you better live right or he's going to take it away from you. I don't understand this idea that thinks that I have to add something to salvation. Here's salvation. He bore my sins on the cross. He paid the debt I could not pay. He owe, I owed it. He paid it. He took it. He suffered for it. I, I don't have to do anything. It's all him. That's what the Bible teaches. And I don't understand this concept that says, oh, no, he bore some of my sins. No, he bore all of my sins. He took all of them. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Look, did he die for your sins or not? Did he pay for your sins or not? Did he, did he make a full and complete payment? Or was it just a down payment and we got to make the you know, monthly payments for the next 30 years on that thing? Look at verse 4. And that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Notice verse, uh, go, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're, you're there in 1 Corinthians 15. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I, I want to show you something about uh, the gospel here. And here's what you've got to understand, and I'm sure all of you get this, but it's good to just be reminded about this. Jesus was God in the flesh. The Bible says that they, na- they called him Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us. The Bible says the Word was made flesh. The Bible says God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus was God in the flesh. And here's what you've got to understand. Jesus never sinned on this earth, never did anything wrong. Never broke any of the commandments, never lied, never had a bad thought, never did anything wrong. Are you there in 2 Corinthians 5? Look at verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. But this is the gospel. For he, referring to God, hath made him, referring to Christ, to, notice this, to be sin for us who knew no sin. See, he didn't know any sin. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. But the Bible says that he actually became And he actually took upon his body our sins. And he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, salvation is this. He took my sin and I took his righteousness. He took all the sin and the wickedness and the debt that I owed. And I took his righteousness. And here's the thing. When God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see me. He sees me in Christ. 
Because I am in Christ. You say, well, you got to live a right life. No, I got the righteousness of God. And by the way, that's why Jesus lived on this earth for as long as he did. He went around doing good. Why? Because he had to have a righteousness to be able to put and impart upon us. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you start from the end, the book of Revelation, you got Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, first, uh, you got 2nd Peter there, and then 1st Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, when you get to 1 Peter, keep your place there, okay? Because we're going to go back to Isaiah, but then we're going to come back uh, to 1 Peter. And I want you to see this. Salvation is that he took our sins who knew no sin. 1 Peter 2, look at verse number 22. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. I told you tonight's going to be a little more of a Bible study. We're just looking at a lot of references in Scripture. 1 Peter 2, 22, notice what he says. Who did no sin, that's Jesus Christ. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. We're going to talk about that in a second. Look at verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Now keep your finger there in First Peter, all right? And, and notice that phrase, by whose stripes we are healed. Go back to Isaiah 53. That's a quote from Isaiah 53. Look at verse 5. I, I'm trying to give you these cross-references. Maybe you can jot them down next to your Bible there, and you can study that out later on your own if you'd like, or you can share it with someone. Isaiah 53, look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes... We are healed. Now, what is that referring to? His stripes. Go to the book of Mark, all right? Now, here's what you should have. You should have a finger in uh, Isaiah 53, a finger in 1 Peter, and I'll put a finger in Mark, okay? Because we're going to, you got 10 fingers, so you should be able to do this uh, fairly easy because we're going to go back to 1 Peter and we're going to go back to Mark also. So I don't want you to lose your place. Go to Mark chapter 15 and look at verse number 15. Mark chapter 15 and verse number 15. The Bible says this. And so Pilate, Mark chapter 15, and verse number 15, Mark 15 and verse 15, and so Pilate, willing to content the people, this is obviously about the crucifixion of Christ, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus, notice, when he had scourged him, to be crucified. So Isaiah tells us, with his stripes we are healed. And again, we see another reference, another description of his death. The fact that we're told in Mark 15, 15, that he was scourged, he was whipped. And as he was whipped, that whip would leave stripes on his back that would gush out blood. And Isaiah would look ahead uh, to that crucifixion. And he would see those stripes on the back of the Messiah. And he would say, with his stripes we are healed. And that is salvation. And that's why you got to understand this and you got to just settle it in your heart because people are going to come to you and they're going to try to get you all confused about, well, are you sure you don't have to repent of your sins? Or are you sure you don't have to add this to salvation? Look, either he paid for it, either I'm healed by his stripes or I'm not healed at all. But it's not, you know, 50-50. If it's of grace, then it is not of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace is what the Bible says. And if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, works is no more work. Go, go back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse number 4. I want you to notice something. I, I like verse 4. We, we kind of skipped verse 4 to, to, to look at verses 5 and 6, but I want you to look at verse 4 again. Because in verses 5 or 6, we're told something that we all already know, and, he, and, and here's what it is. That he bore the, the, our sin. He took our sin. He took my sin. 
When, you know, when I get to heaven, it's not that God is going to look the other way and say, and, and just, he knows that I've sinned, but he's just going to ignore it. No, the sins have been removed from me. They, they've been put on his account. I settled long ago. I like that song, you know. I settled because he took my sins, I took his righteousness. But here's what's interesting in verse 4. The Bible teaches that not only did he bear our sins, he actually bore the pain of our sin. Notice verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Now, grief and sorrow is not sin. But grief and sorrow is the result of sin. Sin causes us to grieve. Sin causes us to be sorrowful. But guess what? Not only did Christ bear our sins, He also bore the pain and the result of our sins. We don't have to live in grief. We don't have to live in sorrow. We don't have to live, you know, just under this constant pressure of uh, of the sin that I've committed because He actually took the pain from us. That's what the Bible says. And that's why we can go boldly to the throne of grace. That's why we can boldly ask and, you know, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, number one, we see the description of Christ in verses 1 through 3. And number four, we see the deliverance of Christ in verses 4 through 8. Number three, I'd like you to see the defense of Christ. The defense of Christ. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is quoted, is referred to and quoted all throughout the Scriptures, but I want you to notice it. Isaiah 53 and verse 7, the Bible says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And I want you to notice this phrase, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. This was a, 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 a constant theme in the scriptures about the fact that when Christ would be put to death, he was led as a sheep to the slaughters. He didn't open his mouth. He stayed quiet. Now, let's, let's run a few cross-references so you can see it. Go, to, go back to Mark 15. Did you keep your place in Mark? Mark chapter 15, and look at verse number 3. Again, looking at the crucifixion of Christ, Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And verse number 3, notice what the Bible says. Mark 15 and verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. You see that? The chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Pilate was amazed. He said, why won't you defend? And by the way, from, this, from these passages is where the United States of America, we got that, fit, you know, that Fifth Amendment where you don't have to incriminate yourself. You don't have to testify against yourself. It comes from the story of Christ where he, they were asking him questions. They were accusing him falsely. And he just didn't say anything. He just stayed quiet. And that was prophesied by Isaiah when Isaiah told us that he, yet he opened not his mouth. So he opened not his mouth is what Isaiah said. And here we find Christ not speaking, not, you know, just answering nothing, just staying quiet as he's being judged. Can you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 21. I want to show you something interesting about this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. 1 Peter chapter number 2 and verse number 21. Notice what it says. 1 Peter 2, 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin. Now notice what it says here. Again, referring back to Isaiah 53, neither was guile found in his mouth. 
who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, meaning when they mocked him, when they uh, were mean to him, when they said rude things to him, he didn't respond with an attitude. He didn't respond with rude things or mean things. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Neither was guile found in his mouth. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Now you say, well, why did Isaiah and why does Peter and why does, you know, the Bible make such a big deal about the fact that Jesus, when he was suffered, and here's the thing, Jesus did nothing wrong. Remember, we just talked about it. He was without sin. He, he had no sin. He did absolutely nothing wrong. He was completely innocent. And if there's anyone that could have stood up and say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right and this isn't fair and you're, you're lying and you're accusing me falsely and I shouldn't be here and I shouldn't be right. If there was anyone who who could ever say that it was Christ. And yet he suffered silently. He stayed quiet. And you say, why? Why did Isaiah emphasize that? Why did Peter emphasize that? Why did the gospel writers make sure to emphasize that in the account? And here's the reason why. It's in 1 Peter 2. Look at verse 21. It says, For even hereunto were ye called. Here's why you were called. Here's why you are why, why God called you to be a follower of Him. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. Now, we like those words. We talk a lot about that in Christianity. We ought to follow the steps of Christ. We ought to be followers of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to follow His steps? The example that He left was that He suffered. And then He says, your calling is to suffer like Christ suffered. See, when you go through problems and you go through struggles and you go through times in your life that are difficult, God says, you're doing exactly what I called you to do because Christ also suffered. You must suffer as you follow Christ. Yea, all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, is what the Bible says. Now notice, but notice how he suffered. Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Now, remember, he's our example. Here's what he's saying. You ought not complain. You ought not be bitter. You, ought, you say, well, they, don't, they shouldn't treat me that way. You just keep your mouth shut. Christ did. Well, I, I just can't believe. They're reviling me, and they're hating me, and they're fighting against me, and they're lying about me. But they did it all to Christ, and here's how he took it. Quietly, silently. And you say, well, how can I do it? Here's the key. Look at verse 23. If you don't get anything in the sermon, get this. He said, how do you do that? Notice how he did that. Verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But, here's how he went through it. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So how did he make it through that? Here's how he made it. He just kept telling himself, you know what? God knows. God knoweth. God knows who's right in this situation and who's wrong. God knows who's the one that's lying. God knows who's the one that's bearing false witness. God knows who's the one that's being rude or mean or uh, uh, trying to pick a fight. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to give it to God. And he committed himself to him that judges righteously. And by the way, you say, well, why do you do all that? To give us an example of how to suffer in his steps. Go back to Isaiah 53. So number one, we see the description of Christ. Number two, we see the deliverance of Christ. Number three, we see the defense of Christ. Number four, I'd like you to notice the death of Christ. Verse 8, Isaiah 53, verse 8. Now, up to verse 8, I want you to understand this. Up to verse 8, you may, you know, from the writings of Isaiah, you may think, 
oh, Jesus was just severely beaten. You know, they just really beat him up and they scourged him and they did these things. But in, in verse 8, he refers to the fact that he died. Look, look at verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. That's when he was falsely accused and arrested and taken to the judges. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Now, there, there's no, you know, when, when Jesus talked about the fact that people should have known that the Messiah was going to die, here's what he's referring to. Isaiah specifically says, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Later he makes uh, different uh, references to that, but notice he continues with the idea of his death. Notice, there are some characteristics to the death of Christ, and even in the death, Christ fulfilled these prophecies. Verse 9, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Okay, so let's run a few references. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 53. Go to Luke chapter number 23. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 23 and look at verse number 32. Luke 23 and verse number 32. The Bible says that he made his grave with the wicked. What is that referring to? He made his grave with the wicked. Now we know that he had no sin. But yet he was put to death with sinners. And not just sinners, but wicked people. Luke 23 and verse 32, are you there? The Bible says, Luke 23, verse 32. And there were also two other male factors, that word means criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which was called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the male factors, the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. You remember the story of Christ when he was put to death? He had the, uh, there was the thieves that were crucified next to him. And, of course, there's a whole story there about they were mocking them, and one of them eventually, you know, asked to be saved. But Isaiah referred to the fact that he made his grave with the wicked, and then that prophecy was fulfilled with the fact that when Christ was crucified, he was crucified next to these male factors, next to these criminals, next to these wicked uh, sinners. But notice, go back to Isaiah 53. Look at verse, uh, verse 9 again. Not only does it say that he made his grave with the wicked, it also says, and, and with the rich in his death. You say, well, what is that a reference to? Because he died with the wicked, okay, we saw him, he was crucified with these criminals next to him, but then it says that he uh, died with the rich in his death. Now, here's what, go, go back to Luke, I should have told you to keep your place in Luke, I'm sorry if I didn't. Go back to Luke 23, notice what it says, Luke 23. And, and I want you to think about this, okay, because it's easy for us to look back and to say, oh yeah, he, he made his grave with the wicked, that's a reference to the criminals, and he, he, he was uh, w- with the rich also, and, and we're going to see what, where that comes in. But at the time of Isaiah's writing, this probably seemed though, really random, don't you think? I mean, the people are thinking like, what are you talking about, Isaiah? You know, he, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, but you've got these prophecies, and then the Lord Jesus Christ comes and fulfills every single one of them. Notice what it says, Luke 23, verse 50. And behold... There was a man named Joseph, Luke 23, verse 50. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, this is Joseph of Arimathea, who's a wealthy man, a rich man, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. So Jesus was crucified, and after he died, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and says, can I have the body? And the Bible says he begged for the body of Jesus. 
What did he do with that body? Verse 53. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. Jesus was laid in a very nice grave. I mean, a sepulcher hewn out of stone. Can you imagine how long it would take to take a huge boulder and, and hollow it out? To make it a grave, I mean, today with our modern technology, it would be a lot of work and it would take a long time to take a boulder and hollow it down out and basically make it a cave to put a body in. But Joseph of Arimathea, he had this grave already. He, you know, he, he, had, he got one of those deals at the funeral home. He prepaid for his burial plot and because he was a rich man. And, and he goes and he takes the body of Christ and he lays it in this very expensive grave. So that Isaiah 53 would be fulfilled that he was in the grave with the rich at his death. And with the wicked as he was crucified. Go back to Isaiah 53, look at verse 10. Number one, we see the description of Christ. That's verses 1 through 3. Number two, we see the deliverance of Christ. That's verses 4 through 8. He bore our sins. Number three, we see the defense of Christ. Verse 7, he suffered silently. Number four, we see the death of Christ, that he died with the wicked, he died with the rich. Number five, I'd like you to notice the delight of Christ. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord. Now I want you to notice that word, it pleased. The word pleased means it was delightful, it was a good thing, it was enjoyable. Yet it pleased the Lord. Now the Lord there is a reference to God, Jehovah. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, that he is referring to God, he hath put him, that him is referring to Christ, to grief. When thou, God, shalt make his, Christ, soul, an offering for sin. Now listen to me. Physically and practically speaking, we know that the Jews accused Christ and moved the hand of the Romans to put him to death. Physically and practically speaking, we know that the Romans took Christ and physically hung Him on a cross and crucified Him. But you've got to understand that the one who put Jesus to death was the Lord Himself. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It was, see, people like to think today, like, well, Jesus, you know, was an accidental death, and he, wasn't, he was supposed to be the Messiah, and they misunderstood him, and they got mad in the group. It was the plan of God all along that Christ would die, and when, it, when he did, we get these odd verses, but they're kind of beautiful in the sense of understanding the gospel, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And by the way, that phrase, prolong his days, is a reference to the resurrection. Because prolonging your days means you live long. Now, he already told us that he was put to death. So how, do you, how does a guy who's been put to death live long? Here's how a guy that's been put to death end up having a prolonging of days. After his death, he resurrects from the grave. And you got a reference there to the resurrection. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. God enjoyed the fact. And not that God enjoyed the fact and the fact that he took enjoyment in his, in his pain, but it, got, it pleased God that Christ would die for our sins. And it was, in fact, the will of God that Christ would die 
for our sins. It was the plan. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before God ever laid the foundation for planet Earth, before God ever spoke the words, let there be light, God had it planned that Jesus Christ would die on the cross for our sins. And it was pleasing to him. Notice, you're there in verse 11, but go back to verse number 6 of Isaiah 53. Notice what he says. Isaiah 53, look at verse 6. And we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who laid the iniquity of us all on him? The Lord. Notice verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken. Notice, smitten. The word smitten means like smacked, like hit. And it says, smitten of the Romans? No. Smitten of the Jews? No. Now we know they did it. Physically, practically, they did it. Book of Acts tells us the Jews put him to death. I get that and we understand that. But the plan was, he was smitten of God and afflicted. Who put him to death? God. Who was pleased at his death? The Lord. Because it was God's plan all along. That the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world through his death. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he had poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Again, a reference to the fact that he was put to death with the criminals, that he was put to death. He poured out his soul unto death, and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So here's your outline for the chapter. You've got the description of Christ, verses 1 through 3, the deliverance of Christ, verses 4 through 8, the defense of Christ, verse 7, the death of Christ, verses 8 through 9, and the delight that Christ gave God in his death, verses 10 through 12. Now, let me just show you something interesting, uh, just some, some interesting things in this chapter as we finish up tonight. We won't be very long because uh, we've got the fellowship afterwards. But I, I want you to notice, go back to verse number 3, Isaiah 53 and verse 3, and I want you to notice this. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Now, I want you to notice this, okay? He was despised, all right? Now, this passage happened hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. But when Isaiah gives us the prophecy, he gives it to us as if it has already happened. And here's why. He was slain from the foundation of the world. When God says something's going to happen, it's as good as done. And Isaiah refers to this event as if it's, it's past tense. It's already happened. Now, we know it hadn't yet happened, but here's what he says. Verse 3, he was, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. For our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Look at verse 8. He was taken from the prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. All of it past tense. He was, he was, he was, he was, he was, is what the prophet says. But I want you to notice, everything in this passage is past tense, and then there's two things that are present tense. And notice what it says. Look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root of dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, notice, now when we shall see him, that's future sense. Future. That's, that's the second coming. When we shall see him, notice, there 
is, present tense, not was, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's what I'm telling you. When we see Christ, we will see him as he walked on this earth. He'll be in his glorified body and, you know, flame, his eyes will be flaming and he'll be shiny and all those things. We get that. But physically, he's going to look at the same. Now, here's what's interesting. Everything that Isaiah says is either was or the fact that we're going to see him past tense or it's in the future. He says there is no beauty in it, meaning there's still no beauty in it, meaning when we see him, there'll be no beauty in him. But notice what there still is also. Verse 3. He not was, he is despised and rejected of men. It's interesting. Everything else, Isaiah says, he was, he was, he was, he was. But when he talks about being despised and rejected, he says he is. Because guess what? Christ is still despised and rejected of men. Even today. And that's present tense. He is. There is no beauty in him. Let me give you one more thought and we'll finish up. There are three questions that are asked in this passage, and they're very good questions. Look at verse 1. He says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, the arm of the Lord revealed is actually kind of connected with that first question because the arm of the Lord deals with the strength of God. And if you remember in Isaiah 52, he talked about the arm of the Lord. Awake, awake, uh, arm of the, and he refers to the arm of the Lord in Isaiah 52 and in 51. We get those references. So it's interesting that we have an entire chapter about the weakness of Christ and the fact that he was put to death, but it really in that weakness we see the strength of God and the arm of the Lord and the fact that he'll give us salvation. But I like these two questions because all the way back, and this is a great chapter for our dispensational friends, you know, these dispensationalists who want to say, in the Old Testament, things were different than the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. And God, you know, back then they got saved differently. And back then God had a different plan. And back then God had a different agenda. And he wanted the Jews to do something different than he wants the church to do. And that's what all the dispensationalists teach. But Isaiah is writing to the Jews in the Old Testament. And he sounds like an independent fundamental Baptist today. I mean, he sounds like he's preaching this morning's sermon because notice the two questions he asked. Verse 1, he says, Who have believed our report? Is that the same thing you and I are asking today when we go out soul winning? Do you believe this? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? And here, Isaiah is giving us this great chapter on the crucifixion of Christ. And he begins by saying, Who has believed our report? But then I like the second question even more than the first, or the third question. Look at verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And then he says this, who shall declare his generations? Now the word generations is a reference to having children. You know, if you read the, the chronologies in Scripture, if you read the chronology of Christ, you'll see the generations of Jesus Christ, you know. And that's what it's dealing with. And physically and practically, it's talking about the fact that Jesus had no children. I know some of you watch that Da Vinci Code garbage and, you know, all these things. But Jesus had no children, okay? Notice what it says. Who shall declare his generation? For he is cut off from the land of the living. He died. He had no children, okay? But notice in verse 10, there's a play on words here. Because in verse 10 he says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. Now you see, seed is a reference to children. Say why? Because because of the death of Christ, we were able to be brought into the family of God. And we are all the children of Christ. 
Oh, he's our brother and he's God and we get that. But we are his children. He shall see his seed. Look at verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It was delightful to God. It was a satisfactory payment that Jesus made. It wasn't a down payment. It was paid in full and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many. Many people got saved. Many people will be saved because of the sacrifice of Christ. And Isaiah says this, who shall believe? And then he says, who shall declare? He says, who's going to go preach this? He said, who's, who's going to go out and knock on those doors? Who's going to go out and get, get involved in that soul winning marathon? Who's going to go out and, and give up that Saturday morning? You know, whatever you do on Saturday morning, you're golfing or you're gardening or whatever it is. Who's going to decide that they're going to take what they believe and then they're going to declare it so that Christ can have seed, so that there can be many servants, so that a servant can justify many. And he sounds, it sounds like this morning's sermon. He said, believe it and preach it. He said, who has believed? And then he said, and who shall declare? He said, who's going to make this message known? And for the Jews in the day of Isaiah, it's the same agenda, the same plan that it's been, and it's the same thing for us today. Who hath believed our report, and who shall declare his generation? And I want to ask you, do you believe? Hopefully you're not in church on a Sunday night and you don't believe. But let me ask you this, will you declare? Who shall declare? Is what Isaiah said. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.